Good morning, and Happy New Year to the two people that said good morning to me this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, very good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy, you shouldn't have done that. <clears throat> Nonetheless, haven't been with you since Christmas Eve, so it's a real blessing to be able to, to be with my people again and to uh, open the Word of God together. It's always such a blessing. Uh, to see you and to learn together. So that's what we want to do. And I encourage you to open your Bible this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read 21 verses there, the first 21. Before we get to that, I just want to say that um, uh, to, to kick off the new year, January 2, Pastor Chris Ross was here uh, electronically. <laughs> we, there was a video. Some of us needed some time uh, to uh, some time off to recoup a little bit. But I, uh, I watched the, the message that Pastor Ross ga uh, gave on the second last week. And uh, he launched a new series that we're going to be doing um, sort of intermittently between other series that we're doing between now and uh, June, between now and summer. And so I do believe there's three in a row to open our new year. And we're focusing on, um, it's called Family Dynamics in the Household of Faith. And Pastor Chris did a fantastic job uh, making a case from the New Testament, which is very evident that the church is a family of God. We are brothers and sisters here. And so uh, within that, he went specifically to Colossians chapter three and talked about a healthy church family. What does it look like? And to summarize, he said, a healthy church family is unified yet diverse. Healthy church family puts on love. It lets peace reign among the family, it lives in God's world, in, in God's word, sorry, uh, being people of the word. We live in the world as well, but we're not of the world. And the church family, a healthy church family is thankful. And to that this week, I wanna add another layer, and we're gonna talk about accountability relationships. A family is accountable to one another. Now we resist accountability, right? We resist accountability for a number of reasons. I don't have time to get into all of them. Trust is a big one. Confidentiality, what, what do I do if, if you know things about my life that need changing, right? What are you gonna do with that? And so we resist accountability. Uh, to start the new year, Marcy and I have started another Bible reading plan, a different one in the Bible Project. It's really good. And we're, uh, we're in the book of Genesis right now. And in the book of Genesis, you see... Um, a lot of breakdown of relationship due to sin. And in fact, the very first, you know, after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit they weren't supposed to and ushered sin into the world and they were banished, we see a murder that happens, right? Between Cain and Abel. And, uh, and the statement was made, well, when God came to look out, look for, uh, for Cain, he said, well, is, uh, am I my brother's keeper? I think things would have gone a whole lot better if maybe he had had that perspective to begin with, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? Are we looking out for one another? Are we accountable to one another? You see, accountability is this, an obligation or a willingness to accept responsibility to or account for one's actions. So in the church, we don't take responsibility for each other's actions, but we help them to do that. And when we help another person take responsibility for their actions, they grow spiritually and they do exactly what our passage uh, tells us that we should be doing as a family of God. So here we go, Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, family language, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon you upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wow, what a loaded passage, eh? Uh, In order to understand this passage, we need to understand a little bit of the structure of the entire book of Ephesians. And to understand that, we need to go right to the very middle, Ephesians 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, I therefore, whenever you see therefore, you have to understand everything that came before it. A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Ephesians 4, verse 1, as you can see there, is a pivotal point in the book of Ephesians where we move from theology to practice. The Apostle Paul spends three chapters, one, two, three, talking about our calling, who we are, that we've been adopted and that we've been you know, sanctified and, and, and predestined. And, and, and he talks about the grace, our salvation, all of these things. There's so much rich theology in Ephesians 1, 2, 3. And then there's that pivot in chapter four where he begins talking about our conduct. So we have our calling in Christ and then there's our conduct, which from there on in is referred to as our walk. This is the Christian walk. Chapter four, verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Chapter five, our text, therefore be imitators of God and be, as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk as children of light. Look carefully then how you walk. You see, theology is very practical. It has a bearing on how we live our lives. And so today I wanna talk about three components of our Christian walk. We have at the very beginning of this text, the center or the target 
of our Christian walk. Then we have the challenge or the challenges to our Christian walk. And then we have Paul ending this section with a careful Christian walk. What does it mean to walk carefully um, as a family and as individuals uh, as we follow Christ? So I'm gonna highlight these three components. And I wanna say this right at the beginning. The Christian walk, what God has called us to and how he asks us to live is not ever meant to be walked alone. In fact, we can't do it alone. It's a high calling. We have a high calling and we have a walk based on that calling that Christ has called us to. We simply need each other in order to walk the Christian walk. We need to be our brother and our sister's keeper, not to take responsibility for their actions, but to help them take responsibility for their own actions so that we can function together, continue to function together as that healthy family that Pastor Chris talked about last week. So let's get into it. Number one, the center of our Christian walk. If we were to draw sort of a target of our, of our uh, representing our Christian walk, or if you think of a walk as linear, I like to think it as a little bit more rounded than that, but like a target, and you have these circles where you get to the very center, but if you wanna think about it as linear where you have literally a walk, a path, and there's the end goal, either way, um, what would be at the very center or what would be the end? What, what are we aiming for? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, therefore be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In order to succeed, we need to imitate God. Be imitators. And that's, what, that's how kids learn in a family, right? They imitate. I was gonna put some uh, pictures on the screen, but I didn't for a couple of reasons. Number one, I just didn't. <laughs> and secondly, there was one picture that was a little bit, I don't know, it's a picture of our son, but when he was like really little, I don't know how old would he have been, Mars, about three, two. He, uh, he found my boots. So here's the thing. He only had a shirt on, maybe a tank top. I forget what it was. Other than that, like butt naked, literally. So that's why I didn't put the picture up. <clears throat> I, I could have blurted out a little bit, I guess, but he was facing the other way. Very cute. Nonetheless, he's wearing my boots and he's wearing my hat and he's walking around the house. You know, that's what kids do. They want to be like dad. And we have, we, I'm sure you have pictures like this of your kids or grandkids. We have a picture of our daughter. You know, she's up and she pulls a chair to the counter, gets out a rolling pin to help with, you know, making, we have a picture of her rolling out pie dough. We have a picture of her, you know, very cute, standing on the chair by the sink, helping with the dishes. She's got her little tea towel there and she's going for it. That's what kids do. We learn by imitating. We learn how to walk. We learn how to be part of the family. It's normal. You see, we are made in God's image. And so our lives ought to reflect God. Our lives ought to be a picture to the world of who God is. Because we're an exact, we, not an exact representation, that's Christ of God, but we are made in the image of God. He designed us this way on purpose to reflect his character, his heart, his ways. We sang about the holiness of God. Our lives ought to reflect a holy God. 
as we imitate him, as we do what he does, as we go where he says we should go, as we say what he says we should say, just like Jesus did. I'm impressed. Like The reason why Jesus spent so much time in prayer, not a lot of prayers of Jesus recorded, but we hear over and over again that he went to a solitary place to be alone with God, to be with his Father. And, you, and some of the prayers that are recorded, it's like Jesus saying to God, I, I'll do whatever you say. I'll go where you want me to go. I won't do what you won't have me do. And how did he learn this? By listening to his Father and by getting directions from him. And so as Christians, little Christs, as we are disciples of Jesus and followers of him, we should do what Jesus did with his father in imitating the father and listening to him for what it is we should do and say. And when we do all of these things, it brings him glory. That is the ultimate aim of our lives is to glorify God. When we imitate God, we bring him glory. When our lives reflect anything else than God, then we are pursuing idols. We are idolaters, and this passage talks about idolatry. We are idolaters when we exchange the glory of the immortal God, as Paul wrote in Romans 1, for images that are created or for anything else. When we serve creature and when we serve created things rather than the creator, we become idolaters and our lives begin to go off track. Our Christian life becomes a struggle. So our lives must reflect God and not other things. How is this evident? Paul says in the first two verses, number one, it's evident by our unconditional and sacrificial love for others, just as Christ loved us, right? Unconditional and sacrificial, this means that we love other people despite their socioeconomic status. We love people despite, and in the midst of their ethnicity, if they're different from us, it doesn't matter. We do love people despite their sin. In fact, that's when they need more love. We even love people despite their vaccination status. Oh, did I just say that? <laughs> yes, I did. Because these things divide people these days. We, as imitators of God, are to love all people. Can I get an amen to that? All people. That's how we imitate God. And secondly, we imitate God, Paul said in verses one and two there, by offering up our lives as a living sacrifice to God. Paul repeats that in Romans 12. Here's the thing on our Christian walk. God first. If you're not listening and imitating God first, you're gonna go off track. Others second. Consider others better than yourselves. Paul wrote in Philippians Sacrifice, just as Christ sacrificed for us, we sacrifice for other people in order to bring them to God and reflect his glory. Me, last. Last. Okay, gotta move on. Otherwise, I'm gonna spend 40 minutes on point one, which I've been known to do. Number two, here are the challenges. Uh, let's pluralize that. The challenge or the challenges to our Christian walk. And you can summarize them in three, three words, and they're all here in the first few verses. Immorality. Sexual immorality is named specifically. 
impurity. So Paul wants to make sure that uh, if we didn't catch the sexual immorality part, then impurity should catch everything else, okay? And idolatry. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, verse five, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, that's where I get the three eyes from, immoral, impure, idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. This is, this is serious, really serious. And we don't talk about it enough in the church, do we? Now, when Paul says here, that immorality, impurity, and idolatry must not even be named among you, what that word means is this. It mustn't, you must not be known for this. So when people in the community, in the world, look at the church, when they look at us, we, these three words, sexual immorality, impurity, and idolatry, and I read the list, right? When, I don't need to reread it. You know all of the specifics in between there. We shouldn't be known for those things. Why? Is it just a list of do's and don'ts so that God can keep some sort of control over us so that we can just go through life being unhappy? Is that why? Just the opposite, in fact. The reason why God does not want us to go down the path of immorality, impurity, and idolatry is because those things lead us away from God and the life that he has for us. Jesus said, I have come to bring life and to bring it abundantly. And when we're going on a path that doesn't include these things, we will experience the abundant life that God has for us. We will. I promise you. Well, when we go down this path of immorality, impurity, and idolatry, we, are, we, we don't have abundant life. In fact, we are not walking in freedom. We are walking in bondage, and our lives will be miserable. I speak from experience, okay? And I'm sure each one of us can identify with one of those three words up there. So the first reason is why God doesn't want us is because they lead us away from him. We can't imitate God when we're, when we're walking a different way. And secondly, they don't reflect who God is and they give others an inaccurate picture of who God is. So God establishes boundaries. And boundaries are for our protection and our thriving, not for our confinement and our punishment to rob our joy. Getting back to our kids when they were little, we lived uh, one of the first places. Yeah, our, our daughter was born. She wasn't walking yet. Our kids learned how to walk and stuff when we were in, first, in our first pastorate and there was wide open spaces. But when we were in Saskatoon in our first home that we owned, we had a large yard and there was a train tracks that ran right behind it. Lo and behold, there's a fence all the way around the yard. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think that's a pretty good thing. The train literally was like a couple of hundred feet from the back fence. When the train went by, our dishes would rattle. <laughs> 
(laughs) After a while, we just didn't notice it anymore. But I tell you, if that fence, if that boundary was not in place, it could be a disastrous situation. That's why we have boundaries, because God wants us to be safe, to have freedom, to enjoy life. Is it to confine or is it to protect? You see, sin keeps us in bondage. Jesus came to bring life. I've already said that. Ultimately, it's about putting other things ahead of God, idolatry, and determining what is right and wrong, what is true and false. And that is a scary place to be. But that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? God said, don't eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do that, your eyes are gonna be open. And all of a sudden, you're gonna realize, "Uh uh-oh. And then from there on in, what Adam and everybody since till the time of Jesus, well, we still do it, but Jesus showed us a better way, <laughs> is that we have to try to determine what is good and what is evil. And it doesn't work. When we try, you know, there's, this, there's this thing that's been going around on social media and the internet for the last couple of years where people talk about my truth. Have you noticed the way people talk? Has anybody noticed that or is it just me? This is my truth. I'm like, well, that's scary. (laughs) What gives you the right to determine what truth is? And when you do determine it, it's probably gonna be way off the mark. And you follow that truth and you're going down the wrong path. We don't have truth outside of Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever comes to him will walk in freedom will experience everything that God has for them. My truth is deception. And that's exactly what this passage talks about. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We can be deceived so easily. And it, and it uh, astounds me as I've been reading through Genesis, uh, how many times, how many times deception and lies were used. When, for, when people try to get their own way rather than following what God had for them and it leads to disaster every time. And Paul said, when we pursue self, sin, my truth, instead of imitating and pursuing God, it leads to two things. There is no inheritance in the kingdom of God and we will experience the wrath of God. Wow, that's serious. But thankfully, we have one Jesus, who bore the wrath of God so that when we trust in him, when we repent, when we confess our sin and we follow him, we will experience forgiveness, wholeness, healing, which is what salvation means, and we will experience freedom from bondage. Hallelujah, amen? That's why Jesus came, to bore the wrath of God, to bear our sin, that we can have freedom. Now, like I said before, we can't navigate these challenges alone. We can't stay on this path alone. We can't experience freedom by ourselves. And so we need, Paul ends by talking about the careful Christian walk. And I would describe this as interdependence. So Ephesians 5 verse 15, Paul said, look carefully then how you walk. And he ends, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in between, we see a couple of one another's. Now it it moves to this language of we need each other in the church. 
And there's a ton of one another's in the rest of the scripture. We're gonna look at it a couple this morning. You see, we need each other to be wise and discerning because we can be so easily deceived. We see that in verses 6, 10, and 17. We will be deceived so fast and be led astray and taken off the right path if we don't have others who help us to be wise and discerning and to make those good choices, right? We need each other to say no and to fight sin and to walk in light, not darkness. We need other people to help us with temptation, especially sexual temptation, which is so strong. Sexual sin is extremely damaging. It is in a category of its own. Sin is sin, I get that, but sexual sin is different. The Bible talks about that. But God is faithful and he promises a way out and we need other people to help us find that way out. Addiction, it's mentioned in the passage about drunkenness in particular, but drugs and alcohol and other forms of addiction, pornography and things, they are so strong. But God is faithful there too and he always gives us a way out. And he gives us the power and the healing through the strongest of addictions because he and the, and the most hurtful of hurts because he is stronger than any addiction and he is more loving and forgiving than any hurt. Galatians chapter six, verses one and two, Paul says this, brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, even the most spiritual among us, those who are on the right path, can be tempted. That's why we need other people to point out the dangers, the pitfalls, where we're gonna go sideways. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How often do we just condemn each other for our sins? It's not what we're asked to do. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We repent, we have it pointed out to us. We repent, we receive the forgiveness of God and we bear each other's burdens. Amen? A lot of murmuring going on there behind those masks. I know this is a challenge. It's so easy to point the finger. It's so easy to say, I, you, why can't you get your act together? Why, why, why? That's not what we're asked, called to do in the church, friends. To be thankful, Paul mentions it a few times in this text, to be thankful and have, a pure, and have pure and wholesome things come out of our mouth means that we need each other. To make the best use of our time, verse 16, we need each other. We need someone to come along and say, hey, like it's, I'm speaking about myself, it's time to get off the couch and do something constructive. We need each other to treat others with respect and to put them first, to have to be held accountable by the way we treat other people. We need each other to understand our own forgiveness. Because when we mess up, our lives can be so overcome with guilt that we can't even forgive ourselves, let alone receive the forgiveness of God. We need others to show us that we can be forgiven and to speak that into each other's hearts. To shine, in, so that the light of Christ would shine into our hearts and that we would come out of that darkness. James 5.16, scripture implores us, therefore confess your sins to one another. We need each other. And pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We need each other to walk as Christ would have us walk. So how do we apply all of this? Well, I'm gonna get real practical here for a moment. Uh, let's go to this, the, the next slide there, Mary, uh, about Freedom Session. <laughs> Some of you may have heard me in the past talk about Freedom Session. What I'm gonna talk about is not limited to Freedom Session, okay? I'm gonna try to pull principles out of here, whether or not you take this discipleship course or not. But I walked through Freedom Session for my own sake, I don't know how many years ago. It's probably about 15 years ago now, 12, something like that. And I've gone through it another five times at least since then, either facilitating small groups of people or being a director of, of Freedom Session. Uh, look it up online, freedomsession.com. Uh, I'm a firm believer in this and other similar programs that... Um, lead people towards the wholeness and the free and full life that God has for them and uses strong accountability to accomplish it. It's impossible. It's impossible, friends, without accountability. So in session three, it's called, I'm just cherry picking a few things, by the way. This is all like I'm giving Freedom Session credit. These are not my thoughts, okay? The author... In fact, I know the authors of Freedom Session very well, good friends. Used to be my youth pastor back in Saskatchewan. So that's why I have such high regard for this. Session three, after we face reality and step out of denial <laughs> about what's going on in our lives, is called sober-minded and alert. God, the scripture has called us to be sober-minded. And so um, Freedom Session uses this language, drug of choice or drugs of choice. And um, a drug of choice is whatever I turn to in an attempt to illegitimately escape pain and avoid conflict. Because each one of us has pain and conflict in our lives. And when we don't get a grasp on those things and we're not healed from them, we will go down the path of all of these things that take us away from Christ, not closer to him. I wanna name some drugs of choice. So we have our most damaging ones, and then we have our most frequent ones. Sometimes they're the same. Common drugs of choice, food, TV, pornography, romance novels, blaming, rescuing, controlling, alcohol and drugs, work. Ever heard of workaholism? Performance, criticism, masturbation. Yes, I said the word. Shopping, gossip, fantasy, anger outbursts, sympathy, cutting, internet surfing, the approval of others, even ministry, keeping yourself busy doing good things. Gambling, gaming, social media, online affairs, isolation. That's why the last couple of years has been so hard on people. And they've gone down all kinds of paths they shouldn't go down because they're just simply isolated. Hobbies sex or flirtation, fantasy sports, binging and purging, prescription drugs, exercise, all of these things. And sobriety involves becoming alert. I wanna quickly summarize these things. Alert just simply means admit. A is for admit, L is for lies, E is for escape, R is for resist, 
and T is for trade in. We admit in specific detail the behavior I'm considering. What am I telling myself to justify this behavior? What am I trying to escape or avoid? Resisting involves three Ps. We need to play out the movie to the very end and see where that leads. We need to pray and ask God for a way of escape. We need to plan our activities for the next four hours so that we don't go down that path. And we need to trade in our intended behavior for a healthier one. And that means that we need accountability. We can't do those things by ourselves. Session four, stepping out of insanity. I just wanna quickly mention the HALT scale. HALT means hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or stressed. If you are any of those things, your chances of indulging your drug of choice, whatever it is, goes way up. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or stressed. There's a lot of that going on these days. That's where we need accountability. What do you do when you're lonely? What do you do when you're stressed? What do you do when you're angry? Session eight talks specifically about my support, my sponsor, and Guys, there's 28 weeks, okay? <laughs> Stuff is loaded. We spend like two to three hours every session together, okay? And time in between. Accountability, that's your support. Um, three people, all of the same gender, who get together weekly and who will contact each other during the week to resist or flee temptation, to check on each other's progress, to follow the alert plan, to encourage and to pray for one another. You see, in verse seven of our text, Paul says, do not be partners with the sons of disobedience. And so when we go down the wrong path, we often partner with the wrong people who take us down that path. We need to partner with the right people. We need to have at least one or two other people in our lives who will say, hey, brother, sister, you're going down the wrong path. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Next slide there. Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help him up. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one keep warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better. Uh, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. That's why Freedom Session uses a triad, three people of the same gender who walk 28 weeks very closely together. The goal is not perfection, but progress. It means to be open and honest and expect the same from other people, to encourage, to not put up with lame excuses, to follow through on commitments to expect people to keep their word. Proverbs 27, verses five, six, and 17 says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, and one man or woman sharpens another. So we need each other. I could talk more and more about this, but um, going back to the Freedom Session thing, there's also a sponsor, which is also a mentor. Uh, you see, when you are in an accountability relationship, it's usually people at the same spot in the journey with you and you're walking this path together, but you need someone who is further ahead than you, who is probably physically older, but for sure spiritually older, who, can, who, is, who has come through those things and is on the right path and walking a victorious Christian walk 
and who is praying with you and encouraging you and championing you and helping you through those hurts, not a counselor, but a mentor who will be there for you that you can rely on when, you, when your uh, tendency or you're on the verge of relapse or maybe you have relapsed, you go to your sponsor, you go to your mentor, but you also tell your accountability partners. Okay, I'm gonna close with a story. I've talked long enough, right? <laughs> Everybody's sitting there really quiet because this is pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> Let me tell you a really good story, okay? October 23rd, the Vancouver Canucks traveled really far down to Seattle for the Seattle Kraken, uh, brand new franchise in the NHL this year for their game opener, October 23rd. So there was a fan sitting right behind the Canucks bench. Her name is Nadia Popovici, 22 years old, graduated from the University of Washington in 2019, is about, she's accepted into medical school, she had been working at a cancer clinic, she's sitting behind the Canucks bench, and the equipment manager, Brian Hamilton, he goes by the name Red, because he has red hair, he's standing there in his suit, as these guys do during the game, right? And at one point, he goes to scratch his neck and he pulls his collar down a little bit and she leans forward and she notices this rather odd-looking mole on the back of his neck. And she goes, that's not a mole. That's cancer. So she got out her phone and she got her notepad or whatever and typed in the biggest font possible, the mole on the back of your neck is cancer. And she hesitated to do this, but she turned the phone around and put it against the glass. And when he caught his eye, he kind of dismissed it, but he said later it shook him to the core. And so what did he do? Smart guy, he went and visited the team doctor after the game. Team doctor says, 100%, it is type two malignant melanoma, and if this had gone below the surface of your skin, you wouldn't be here in four or five years. So Brian Hamilton did a shout out on social media to try to find this girl and they found her pretty quick, that's the power of social media, invited her back to the next Canucks game in Seattle, which was January 1. They gave her the same seat behind the bench and they honored her during the game. People gave her a standing ovation. Brian met her before or after the game, I forget. And the Kraken and the Canucks together combined to give her a $10,000 scholarship towards her medical training. My point is, if you point out the cancer in someone else's life, you're gonna get $10,000. <laughs> nah, I got you laughing, just kidding. We need each other. We need each other to say, hey, if you don't take care of this, it could be the end of your life. Let's pray. Ah, oh, Jesus, heavy sermon, but it's in your word. Uh, your, your word doesn't pull any punches. It uh, shoots pretty straight. And so, God, um, I need your help. Everyone here I, this morning, I believe, needs your help. Uh, and we need each other. So help us to be brave enough to speak into others' lives when we see something wrong, to do it in a spirit of love and sacrifice. To bear each other's burdens. God, help us to grow as a church as we...
live out what it means to be members of the family of God. Thank you for your love for us and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.